Hi everyone and welcome back to Inside the Nudge Unit. My name is Izzy Brennan. I'm an advisor in the energy and sustainability team here at the Behavioural Insights team. And today I'm joined by Toby Park and Andrew Shine. Hi everyone, Toby Park here. I head up the energy and sustainability work at the Behavioural Insights team. Great to be back on the podcast. And I'm Andrew Shine, senior advisor in the energy and sustainability team. Welcome, Andrew. Welcome, Toby. So we are going to be talking all about BIT's new flagship report, How to Build a Net Zero Society. And this report is all about how behavioural insights can help to decarbonise transport, home energy, food and material consumption. So the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, also known as the IPCC, calculates that behaviour change has the potential to reduce global emissions by between 40 and 70% by 2050. This is obviously quite a substantial amount by any reckoning, but at the same time, potential is obviously not the same as actual. So in this new report, we're examining practical, actionable strategies that can help harness this potential. Um, as not only are they practical um, approaches that can help us to reach this goal, but crucially, these are also approaches that we think have the consent of the majority of the public. So let's dive in and examine in a bit more detail what we're suggesting and why. So maybe if we just start right at the beginning then, Toby, could you talk us through a little bit about what this report's all about? So who's it for and what are the key messages? Yeah, thanks very much, Izzy. So the report is aimed very much at policymakers, but also decision makers in business, educators, influencers, public service providers, really anyone who might have a role in supporting and encouraging others to make sustainable choices. Um, as for the key message, I think you know we start importantly by making the case that climate change is largely a behavioural issue. So the Climate Change Committee show that around 62% of emissions reductions needed in the UK to reach net zero depend on behaviour. Uh, and by the way, the uh, International Energy Agency so show the same thing uh, is true globally. Uh, now, most of that, around 53%, is technology adoption behaviours. So in the UK, that will be things like heat pumps uh, to heat your home instead of gas boilers, uh, electric vehicles, household energy efficiency retrofits, and so on. Uh, only 9% of those emissions reductions really depend on what we might consider to be lifestyle changes. So things like shifting our diets to more sustainable products, driving less, flying less. Um, we also argue, though, that the other 38%, which is more supply side changes, they still have a behavioural and social dimension to them. So in particular, public support for green energy infrastructure like nuclear and onshore wind, as well as, of course, uh, broader public support for green policies. So there's very little daylight, really, between the technological and the behavioural and social transition that's required. So that's a pretty big undertaking. It's a scale of challenge that I think behavioural scientists and practitioners haven't really delivered on before. So we do need an account of human action and social transformation that's up to that task. So that's really what this report tries to provide. We take a very broad view. We're trying to explain not only how individuals make green choices, but also how those choices are really profoundly influenced by their choice environments, and perhaps bigger yet, the dynamics of the whole system. So the functioning of markets, feedback loops you get between supply and demand, the way that ideas and technologies spread, um, and of course how those are influenced by regulatory environments, institutional leadership, and so on. So all of that has a, a really powerful trickle-down effect on consumer behaviour, which of course is the lens through which we tend to think about these issues. So we do all of that, both from a theoretical perspective, but also with dozens of case studies of BIT trials and academic research in the report. And finally, of course, we provide a lot of concrete recommendations for policymakers and business leaders 
And we try to do that across five key areas that are critical for decarbonisation. So firstly, communications and public engagement. Secondly, household energy. Thirdly, transport. Fourth, food. And fifth, uh, material consumption and waste. So I think anyone working in any of those fields in particular would hopefully get a lot of value out of the report. So as I said up front, in terms of the practical approaches that we are putting forward, quite a kind of important and interesting thing here is that we think they do have the consent of the majority of the public. Um, and that's because a central part of this report is some new survey data where we have actually explored public support for many of the policy ideas that we're putting forward. And I feel like a lot of the time we're told that the public isn't really up for some of these more daring or more significant changes. But is that actually the case? What did we find in this new survey and did anything surprise you? So I think the first point to note is that there's really strong support for net zero generally in the UK. So the UK government's own data show that 84% of people are worried or very worried about climate change. Uh, only 3% say they don't care. Uh, 64% support net zero by 2050 and only 9% oppose it. Of course, there's a segment there that don't know or haven't really heard what net zero is. So a bit of work to be done there. Um, but actually over half of people think 2050 is too late to reach net zero in the UK. Um, so that's, you know, existing data. In our new survey of UK adults, we also find that um, almost nine in 10 people would like to make more sustainable choices in their own lives. So people are up for that change. That said, nine in 10 also say that it's often too hard to do that uh, because of high costs, inconvenience, limited knowledge, and so on. Um, which I think partly goes to explain why people also tend to say that they want to see stronger leadership on the environment from government and from businesses, in particular doing things, whether that's through policy or through business, to make those green choices uh, easier to adopt. Um, but I think what's particularly surprising from this new data and particularly encouraging is the really high support that we find for a wide range of specific policies, including some policies that are not, you know, not uncontroversial, at least based, you know, based on what you'd think from sort of typical policy rhetoric. So just to give maybe a few examples there, some of the most popular ideas, maybe unsurprisingly, are, um, you know, those that sort of help people, but are, are perhaps not constrictive. So things like just simplifying recycling standards and labels, 93% support. Uh, mandating the higher repairability of products, 90% support, government leading by example on climate issues, 87% support, and so on. Um, but, you know, that high support kind of doesn't drop that much even when you get to some of the slightly more controversial uh, issues. So even product pricing reflecting environmental impacts, that is essentially a de facto carbon tax across a larger portion of the economy, 74% support versus 17% opposition. So still really high support there. Similarly, you know, things like interest-free loans for home energy improvements, not surprisingly, gets a lot of support. 88% uh, of people would be up for that. But even, you know, things like stamp duty being linked to the energy performance rating of your of your home. In other words, if you have a low efficiency home, um, that would increase the cost of either buying or selling that property. That still gets 78% support versus 11% opposition. So really across the board here, what we find is that people are actually quite up for these kind of changes, at least in principle when they're explicitly asked about them. And we did our best to frame these ideas in very sort of neutral, honest uh, and explicit terms. Uh, that said, of course, we don't want to be completely naive about this. We're aware that this data perhaps sort of presents a fairly positive view of things. Um, in reality, once policies such as this, uh, you know, we're, we're in the detail of delivery, um, of course, public debate and um, attitudes can start to shift. 
there was some data last year that came from Ipsos and CAST that showed similar results, but that support does drop slightly when you explicitly highlight the kind of lifestyle and monetary costs that might come as a consequence of those policies. So, of course, you know, that all needs to be navigated with care and make sure that the impacts of these policies are fair and, you know, uh, justly spread across society. But nonetheless, I think it's super encouraging that, you know, at face value, actually support for this kind of policy change is really, really strong. Toby, one thing that I reflect on is that um, it's sometimes like there's a, a dip in support for potential policies when they become um, actual choices that are in front of politicians or voters. But then sometimes as well, once, if they are passed, they become actually more popular again. So an example of this dip is that there's this famous example in 2018 of polling about carbon tax. So the polling question was about requiring fossil fuel companies to pay a carbon tax. And this was in the United States and in um, the state of Washington, which is a fairly liberal state, 69% of people said they would be in favor of doing that. But then in a referendum that same year, a referendum that was basically a pretty straight carbon tax, it was rejected by voters, 43 to 56%. So that's an interesting example of polling overestimating an issue's popularity. At the same time, we have examples of issues that were unpopular being passed, such as a fee on plastic bag use in supermarkets or even the congestion charge in London and those policies becoming more popular over time as people see the benefits. So I wonder if there's, you know, which which is the which is the truth? Is it the latent support that then sometimes fails to materialize when the status quo is being changed and status quo bias comes and moves that support down? Or is it then that latent support is there once the new status quo is the the policy, if the policy is able to be passed and people actually do appreciate it? Or is it just both are true and it depends on the situation? How do you think about that? Yeah, 100%. And I don't think we would ever claim that the sort of simple survey data is is the final word on these things. I mean, I think personally that's why there's so much value in more sophisticated forms of deliberative democracy, um, you know, public forum and so on, so that the details can actually be explored with the public. People can get a sense of the sort of likely downstream impacts of those kind of policies and make a really informed decision. And what we do see, you know, be it in climate assemblies in the UK or around the world, is that still public support that comes out of those uh, events and those processes is still really, really high and often a step ahead of policymakers' perceptions of public attitudes. So I completely agree with everything, everything you said. There's a lot going on psychologically, even with a simple question like, do you support X or Y? But nonetheless, I think like all the data brought together pretty unambiguously shows that the public, in the UK at least, are really on board with not only net zero in the abstract, but a lot of the things that would be necessary to get us there. As long as, and there are some important conditions here, um, particularly around fairness and justness of how those policies land. I think the points you both made there about the nuances of support are really interesting and very important. But as you say, nonetheless, it's still really encouraging to see support in principle for some of these policies, which have typically been framed as a bit more controversial. I think as the nature of some of these proposed policies that you've just mentioned suggests, if we are to tackle climate change, we are going to need to see some pretty substantial changes in people's lifestyles. And that ranges from how we heat and power our homes, how we travel, what we eat, what we buy, and so on and so on. 
And so even with popular support and consent, it is still quite an enormous challenge. So I'd be really interested to turn to next, thinking about how does behaviour change happen at such a huge scale? Yeah, thanks. And I think that's exactly why we've tried to present a model of human behaviour in this report that's sort of up to that task. It's quite a long way from the early days of nudge and behavioural public policy that tended to focus on quite discrete actions like, you know, taking a workplace pension or completing a course of antibiotics. You know, that approach is still incredibly valuable, but we need to go a bit further as well and think about sort of system-wide theories of change. So that's where our central analogy comes into play in the report. So what we've done is frame people as though swimmers in a stream. That might sound a bit weird, but what we mean by that is that clearly we all have a degree of agency to make different choices, just like we can choose to swim in one direction or another. So we might choose the beef burger or the bean burger. We might choose to holiday in Thailand or in Pembrokeshire. We might have our heating at 22 degrees and wear a t-shirt, or we might have it at 19 degrees and wear a woolly jumper. So we do have a certain amount of power as individuals to reduce our carbon uh, emissions quite substantially. But our point is that the stream is also flowing in a particular direction and has a strong current. So the reality is that choosing green is all too often akin to swimming upstream against the current. And decades of behavioural science research now have really highlighted the absolute primacy of what we would call the choice environment or the choice architecture on our actions. So what's affordable, what's readily available, what's seen as socially normative or desirable within the current cultural climate, what's most convenient and maybe most profoundly, what's the default choice if you just go with the flow of that stream? So clearly uh, the stream we're all swimming in is one in which it's frankly too hard, too expensive or counter-normative for most people to buy a heat pump, for example, or an electric vehicle or take holidays without flying or even shift our diets, which is a relatively easy behaviour compared to many of the actions we're looking at, but it still faces large cultural, normative and convenience barriers. So our point is that there are essentially three levels at which you can intervene to try and build a net zero society. So firstly, downstream, we can target the swimmer, the individuals. So basically, we can encourage or ask people to take direct action. And that might be done often with communications and public engagement. So what we mean here is that the locus of change is individual choice, and we're not materially changing the choice environment within which they're making those choices. But generally speaking, the impacts of these downstream interventions, particularly communications and information provision, are pretty modest, uh, precisely because we're still kind of asking people to swim against the current. But where we can start to have real big impacts on behaviour is if we move Um, upstream a bit so we talk about midstream intervention and here what we're talking about is editing or altering the proximate choice environment associated with particular behaviors so this by the analogy might be akin to like throwing a rock in the river to deflect the current and it's actually quite a profound point because now the locus of change is not the individual making different choices in the world that is as it is but it's changing the external environment which determines how easy or accessible or affordable those choices are. So that's, of course, practically very different, but I think also ethically and politically, it's a totally different story. Um, The responsibility for social progress is no longer on the shoulders of those individuals. So, you know, practically speaking, um, we're often here introducing things like incentives and pricing to favour the green options, uh, increasing the availability of green options, And lots of the classic nudge playbook things like setting green defaults or removing frictions and hassles or leveraging social norms. Because, of course, the choice environment here has a social dimension as well as a physical and economic dimension. But finally, 
you know, there are only so many rocks we can throw in the stream to deflect the current. Eventually, we've got to ask ourselves, well, why is the current flowing in such an unhelpful direction to begin with? Um, we also might ask ourselves how we can achieve change at scale, because, of course, those midstream interventions that change the choice environment, they're often best delivered by businesses, like, for example, a supermarket uh, might make plant-based food more available or more prominent and more affordable. But then the question is, well, why would every supermarket bother doing that? Um, you know, if the supermarket is setting that choice environment in a way that influences our behavior as consumers, then what's influencing their behavior? What's the choice environment from the supermarket's perspective? And this is where we think the answer lies upstream. And so in particular, we focus on a few things. Firstly, the role of institutional leadership, i.e. governments and others leading by example. Secondly, the absolute importance of incentives that businesses face. So basically, we need a world in which the commercial profit motive aligns with green choices and outcomes for consumers rather than conflicts with them. Otherwise, we're not going to get anywhere. Um, so that can include things like carbon taxes, of course, but also more sophisticated incentive designs. And then thirdly, the functioning of markets, and in particular, how they can leverage positive feedback loops through business-to-business -business competition. But of course, that's only helpful to the extent that businesses are actually competing on being more green than each other. So that's why we talk a lot about what we call deshrouding, which is like the use of labels and so on to help consumers identify and choose greener businesses so that we can actually spark that competition between businesses to be green. So there's a lot there. Apologies for the long answer. Maybe just to summarize in sort of one sentence, the point here is that there are these multiple levels of analysis through which we can understand human action, but they're very much connected. Uh, so the connection explicitly is that individuals are making choices, and yes, that's influenced by their knowledge, their preferences, their motivations, and so on, but that's within choice environments, which are characterized by things like pricing, availability, convenience, social norms, defaults, etc., which in turn exist as they do, normally because of wider system properties like profit motives, market forces, regulation, institutional leadership, and so on. So we need to be sort of tweaking all levels of that to steer us towards a net zero society. Something where this idea of the importance of upstream intervention was particularly relevant was a piece of work that BIT did with Nesta a few months ago, which was responding to the government's mooted proposals, planned proposals, for what they call the market-based mechanism to support low carbon heat, which was basically the idea that boiler manufacturers would need to start also manufacturing heat pumps in some proportion to the amount of boilers they manufacture, and that proportion would ratchet up over time. And we held a really interesting workshop with industry participants. They have so much power, in our opinion, that they're not even necessarily fully aware of in terms of the supply chains that they influence, the, um, the, the installers and the way that they talk about boilers versus heat pumps. They have a lot of levers that they can pull to increase the proportion of heating systems that are low carbon. And so for us, our response to the government's consultation was pretty supportive because that kind of upstream intervention can be so powerful at cascading through a market and making little changes, um, you know, midstream where, you know, influencing house installers and um, shops behave and also even influencing, of course, consumers' choices. I guess then if we take a bit of a closer look and start with the downstream end of things, um, when it comes to tackling the climate crisis, perhaps the starting point needs to be, first of all, just actually getting people on board. 
So I wonder what you think the role of communications and public engagement is in reaching net zero. And as behavioural scientists, what can we say about how to design effective communications? So I think maybe the first thing to say that's maybe a bit predictable coming from us is that comms will not be enough on its own. Information provision will not be enough on its own. We find that even quite effective comms tend to shift behaviour by, on average, maybe a couple of percentage points. Um, And obviously, if there are other big barriers to the behaviour in question, like it's unaffordable, then comms alone might have no impact at all. Um, But of course, that, you know, that tends to be in discrete settings where we're measuring the direct impact of communications interventions on behavior change. I think our view is that if the story stops there, we're actually missing a bit of the bigger picture and that comms will nonetheless need to play quite an important strategic role in the journey to net zero. You know, this is a long journey, the target of net zero by 2050, that's 27, 28 years um, and is a bit of a mountain to climb. So I think from our perspective, comms can probably play a strategic role in a number of particular ways. So firstly, there is still merit in simply informing our audience so that they know which steps they could or should prioritise. We've now got a lot of survey data across a number of different issues showing that people routinely um, misjudge the relative impacts of different green actions they can be taking. So if they're thinking about food, they will tend to focus much more on plastic packaging and food miles than they will on what the product is they're buying. If they're thinking about energy, they will focus much more on turning off their lights, which doesn't actually save much given modern LED technology, and will completely overlook things like adjusting the flow temperatures of their boilers, for example. So there is a bit of an information gap there, so that can be valuable. Uh, Secondly, I think it's important to think about sort of warm-up Um, benefits, particularly for some of these bigger behaviours that many people are not going to be ready for yet, like changing their vehicle to an electric car or buying a heat pump for their home. Sure, it might land badly if you just tell people to go and do that through a government comms uh, campaign. That's not what we're proposing. What we're suggesting is that we can sort of gently start to build trust, familiarity in these new technologies, try and contribute to a sort of positive, broader narrative of a green future that can help sort of bring people along this journey. Thirdly, where we are making explicit asks of the public to shift their behaviour, it's quite interesting to think about sort of how we can identify small, easy-to-do behaviours that still act as quite important stepping stones to the bigger ones. So, you know, maybe we should move on from just talking about plastic straws and recycling and so on and think about things like, well, why not take uh, an electric vehicle for a free test drive or maybe choose one next time you're on holiday and choosing a rental car? Those are things that many more people might be able and willing to do compared to the numbers that can just buy one outright at the moment. And yet they clearly sort of concretely take people in a, in a direction towards perhaps thinking that, okay, maybe my next car would be an electric car. And of course, ultimately, we can steer people towards the big sort of green steps when they're ready. And there we need to think carefully about how we're sort of targeting that and making sure that it lands well and that we're not asking people living in you know, rural Wales that have no access to public transport to start taking the bus to work. That needs to be sensitive. But nonetheless, there's still an important role for comms there. I think this is a really interesting topic. Um, I personally found that kind of distinction between warm-ups, which are a bit more about building maybe trust and familiarity, and then kind of separately thinking about direct asks to be particularly helpful. Um, But as you say, that kind of strategic role that communications can play sometimes can be overlooked. Getting a bit more specific then, what kind of tips and techniques would you suggest that comms professionals uh, think about applying in their work? That's a great question. I think one of my favorite recommendations from the report is to target communications and support during timely moments of disruption. So this piece of work we did in Portland 
where um, invitations to try a new bike sharing scheme were much more effective among people who had just moved into their home in the in the neighborhood, because that home move is a time when people are trying new routines anyway. And, you know, moving home is the classic one, but there's also, you know, receiving a boiler repair is a very timely moment to start thinking about getting your home heat pump ready. Starting a new job is another timely moment to change travel habits. And then, you know, those life changes as well, such as starting university are a timely moment to change dietary habits and policymakers and also businesses and non-governmental organizations should be thinking about how they can target their communications to those moments. Great. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, good example. And a kind of one that we've tried to include amongst many others within the report to help make it as practical as possible for readers. Moving on then. So I think let's now have a look at the four different sectors that we focus on in the report. Let's perhaps start with the green heat and power, which is, of course, very topical as we're in the midst of an energy crisis. So it'd be really great to understand here, first of all, what are some of the key behaviour changes and technologies that people are going to have to adopt? But equally, what are also some of the barriers that people are facing and therefore some of the most relevant solutions? So one of the most interesting areas is heat pumps. A heat pump is an electrical device that can heat your home using very little energy. The clever thing about heat pumps is that instead of generating their own heat, they just move around heat energy that already exists in the cool outside air. We did an interesting piece of work in collaboration with Nesta, understanding people's willingness to pay. We found that people were um, pretty strongly influenced, of, of course, by the upfront cost of heat pumps. But having heat pumps be framed as the lower running cost option was very, um, it, it moved people's a, a, a lot, perhaps more than you would expect. Um, you know, sometimes we talk about present bias and the, the fact that people overrate the um, upfront cost of things and underrate the running costs of things. But I think Toby and I have both come to feel that there's a little wrinkle to that issue, which is that when you can say something, a product costs less to run over time, even if it only costs a little bit less to run over time, that's an attribute that makes the product more attractive and is perhaps even seen by customers as a sign that it's the higher quality product. So that's influenced me, at least personally, to think about um, what can the government do to get heat pumps to be the lower running cost option for homes over time. It's, it's not well appreciated, but actually heat pumps are already quite near gas boilers and in some cases are lower cost to run over time. They're so fantastically efficient, turning a unit of electricity into two, three, or even four units of heat, that even though electricity is more expensive than gas, um, for the same amount of heat, heat pumps can be less expensive. And then of course, what's exciting for the government, speaking of upstream interventions, is that the price of electricity and gas are something that they can influence. The view is that there are a lot of levies on electricity that could be spread across electricity and gas or just removed from electricity and paid in tax bills instead of energy bills that would make electricity powered heat such as heat pumps more competitive or even actually cheaper than gas powered heat such as gas boilers you know this isn't just about cost though our research certainly shows that cost tends to be the biggest barrier when we're talking about heat pumps 
But there are some quite substantial practical barriers as well, particularly when you're getting your first heat pump installed. You know, once you have one and you're in that replacement cycle decades into the future, it's not too bad. But for the first time, unfortunately for many homes, the reality is that you might need to do things like put in slightly larger radiators, having holes drilled through your external walls to fit the pipework and so on. It can take a number of weeks. And of course, the behavioral issue here is that we're in a, in a market where that is needing to compete against a very streamlined, very mature uh, boiler market where you can get a replacement boiler fitted probably within less than 48 hours, particularly if it breaks down in the middle of the winter, which of course often is the case for people replacing their boiler. I think about two thirds of heating system replacements are in response to a broken down boiler. So we really need to try and get to a world in which not only are heat pumps um, competitively priced against boilers in terms of their upfront price tag, which we're nowhere near yet, uh, ideally cheaper to run than boilers as well, but also in which we can get them in people's homes you know, seamlessly, quickly, um, and in a way where people that are perhaps struggling with a boiler on the end of its uh, legs can simply sort of... Um, you know, see it as a, as a default and easy option um, rather than just sort of returning to the like-for-like -like replacement, which, of course, would lock them into fossil fuels for another 15 years or so. Yeah, definitely. And I think because of the barriers that you've mentioned there and perhaps other reasons, things like getting a heat pump or making kind of larger improvements to people's homes are perhaps things that are a bit more on the horizon and longer-term changes for many people. Whereas I guess right now, the thing that's very front of mind is that people are struggling with their bills. Um, and it's obviously a very challenging time for many, but at the same time, it also does feel like a bit of a timely moment where there's perhaps an opportunity for a win-win because by taking steps to cut those costs, that's also helping to cut carbon emissions. So I was just wondering what um, you'd say now about the kind of more immediate things that people can do to help make changes to their energy usage. Yes, yeah, so we have some exciting polling that we recently did and have uh, posted in blog post form. So um, take a look at our blog if you'd like more details on this. I think um, overall people had a, a fairly good idea about what are the most important actions they can take to um, reduce their, their energy costs, especially this winter when energy costs are basically at unprecedented high levels. Um, people know that turning the thermostat down is is effective. That's, that's right. Um, interestingly though, Overall, I think people don't realize the difference between actions. So people still relate fairly um, low impact actions like turning off lights when they're not in use fairly highly. Turning off lights is something that's very salient, very visible. And also in the past, it was higher impact when light bulbs were so much less efficient. The people may be slow to update to the fact that LEDs are just sort of miracles of science. And then there are some actions that people underrate um, I think the most criminally underrated important action that people can take is installing a water-efficient showerhead. It actually takes so much energy to heat up water, and water-efficient showerheads do save a lot of water. So it's not only saving on your water bill if you're metered as a water customer, but also saving on your heating bill because that heat to heat up the water is, is, is very meaningful. Another interesting aspect of saving energy that people might not immediately think of is actually when they use electricity. It's not necessarily visible to every consumer, but electricity costs a lot more, um, at least to the suppliers, when you use it during the peak hours, which are usually between about 4 p.m. and 8 p.m., when sort of everyone's getting home from work 
um, using appliances at home. Also, there's less solar energy being produced at those times, especially in the winter. Sometimes there's less wind during those times as well. And BIT is doing some really exciting work with the Center for Net Zero and National Grid, ESO, and Octopus Energy on planning sort of like the successor trial to an early demand-side response trial, combining sort of like manual turning down of electricity when um, the grid needs people to use less, but also some automated changes, such as the way people charge their electric vehicles. There's lots of very interesting behavioral issues here um, around do people get better at it or do they start to get fatigued? What does it take to get people to sort of relinquish control of their electric vehicle charger to provide benefits to the stability of the overall grid? And we're just kind of getting into that interesting policy area. It's also interesting to think how interconnected all of this is, of course, because we're talking about decarbonizing transport and moving to electric vehicles. Well, that, you know, more or less doubles the current electricity demand on the grid. And then we're talking about decarbonizing heat by moving to electric heat pumps. That adds about the same again in terms of electricity demand. So we're going to be in a world where total electricity demand might be about three times what it is at the moment. Um, And so there's a whole host of ways of sort of spreading that demand to make the system overall as efficient as it can be. And Andrew's just talked there about sort of manual and in the future probably, I suppose, more automated uh, demand-side response. But of course, it also ties into questions like energy efficiency of the building, because of course, the more efficient it is, the more we can reduce that electricity demand overall. But also what it means is that buildings will retain their heat for a bit longer. So you then start opening up opportunities to shift when you heat your home, because you can heat it, you know, at sort of low demand periods, and that warmth will stay in the building, whereas you just can't do that. You can't spread that demand over time if the building itself is not really thermally efficient. So there's this whole host of changes we need to make that cut across multiple sectors and multiple behaviours that are all kind of in lockstep and kind of enable each other, which I think just sort of highlights the complexity of the transition that we're trying to drive here. And about today, we're about 2% of new cars are electric. But we've, we've sort of gone through what, what the blockers that prevent that being higher is. You know, we haven't quite got the range, or we have actually got the performance. Yeah. Um, they're a little bit too expensive. Um, you know, we've got to build a bit more charging infrastructure. There's a few things that's stopping that. Yeah, I agree, Toby. I think how this all um, cuts across different sectors is a really interesting point. And I guess actually maybe on that, another sector that we have looked at in this report is transport which again covers quite a few kind of behaviours within that. So things like electric vehicle adoption, um, public and active travel, and also aviation. So looking at our research, what are some of the key barriers for people to drive less or rather drive electric, fly less and things like that? And again, similarly, what are the kind of solutions that we could implement both at policy level, but also at the level of other organisations? So I think like most areas that we need to decarbonize, uh, there's a combination of needing to do a bit less and do it better. So in this case, a bit less driving, but when we do drive, drive electric. A bit less flying, and when we do fly, we need to work with industry to reduce the carbon impacts of doing that. So maybe if we take electric cars first, um, I mean, in some ways, this is the issue I'm most optimistic about, given the near exponential progress made to date. And we can look at countries like Norway, who are sort of a step or two ahead and sort of look at the the way that that adoption curve has continued to rise. Um, in the UK, 20% of new car sales now are electric or hybrid. Uh, that's been nearly doubling year on year for the last several years. Uh, By 2030, the government will have banned the sale of new petrol and diesel vehicles um, and hybrids by 2035. 
Um, and of course, vehicles tend to last maybe around 20 years on the road. So the idea is that the road should be pretty saturated with electric vehicles by 2050. So in some respects, you could see it as a bit of a fait accompli. Like the, the, the policies are more or less in place for this uh, transition to, to roll out. But there are still some pretty big issues of concern. So we do know that today, here and now, there are still big barriers to electric vehicle adoption. So in particular, they're more expensive up front. Um, there's also some continued sort of range anxiety amongst the population. Uh, there is, frankly, inadequate public charging infrastructure in some parts of the country. And I think my concern in particular is that these barriers will be felt much more keenly by later adopters. So, for example, if you're a one-car household, uh, you need the car to work in every situation, not just most situations. So range and public charging provision become even more critical. Uh, if you live in an apartment or a terraced house with no off-street parking, you're wholly dependent on public charging, which is more expensive, but also way less convenient um, and just not provided on the curbside outside every home. Uh, if you're a lower-income household, of course, the affordability barrier becomes huge. Um, and if you have accessibility issues, then charging becomes really difficult because the cables are often really quite heavy, uh, many existing charge points uh, on top of curbs and so on. So for me, the issue isn't just about whether or not we'll succeed in electrifying our vehicle fleet across the UK. I'm pretty confident that we will eventually. I mean, notwithstanding, obviously, the potential role of hydrogen. But either way, I think we'll get there. It's more whether or not we can do it in a way that is truly fair and provides a just transition. So I think, you know, some of our recommendations in this space are squarely focused on this issue, particularly around solving uh, the issue of on-street charging for uh, later adopters who don't have off-street parking at home, but also things like supporting the second-hand electric vehicle market. So that would include things like standardized battery tests so that used car buyers know that there's good life in the vehicle, that sort of thing. Also, one more thing I'll say about electric vehicles is there's some really interesting issues with respect to negative perceptions, which can sometimes be worse than reality. So, for example, that EVs are perceived as being really expensive, which they certainly can be, um, but they're also way cheaper to run than a combustion vehicle. So, you know, how many people have done the maths there? And that's something that we can help with with something like a simple lifetime cost calculator to help people sort of recognize when an EV is actually quite economical for them and when it's not. Similarly, uh, the perception of poor public charging infrastructure tends to be a bit worse than the reality. There's now over 59,000 public charge points in the UK compared to just 8,000 petrol stations. So sure, we definitely need more, uh, particularly in some parts of the country. Um, but part of the problem is that they just go quite easily unnoticed, particularly by people who don't drive an EV. And those, if you think about it, the people that we care about in the context of promoting adoption. So charge points are often, you know, relatively small. They're often at the back end of car parks or in dead spaces. There's no standardized clear signage. And in contrast, when you drive into any town or village, you really expect to find a petrol station. It's really part of that anticipated built environment. And that's just not the case with charge points. Uh, so, you know, our risk aversion and our uncertainty aversion kicks in and we think, well, it's just easier and safer if I just have a petrol vehicle. But, you know, we think that's quite solvable. So, um, you know, with more thoughtful distribution of charge points, ensuring they're all interoperable so that any driver of an EV can use any one of them, ensuring they're more reliable by holding providers to account if they're broken, ensuring they're operable every day of the week, even if the business they're attached to is closed on Sundays, ensuring you can easily find them and that non-EV drivers can see them. Uh, perhaps mandating their provision in really key salient locations, like if every petrol forecourt in the country had to have a few charge points, for example. 
So those kind of strategies, what we're trying to do there is, is sort of give more psychological or behavioral bang for buck in terms of the impact that they have on the perceptions of people who don't yet drive an EV. Thanks, Toby. That was really interesting. Um, so I guess that was all about trying to get people to use their car better by switching to electric. But actually, what about just getting people to use their car less? Yeah, and I think this is an even harder challenge, actually. So, um, you know, the Climate Change Committee called for a 9% reduction in car use by 2035 and a 17% reduction by 2050. Um, and the government's own strategy at the moment is for half of all journeys in towns and cities to be walked or cycled by 2030. So this is clearly very much a behavioural challenge. It's really quite heavily dependent on uh, sustained lifestyle changes. Uh, so there are some big barriers here. I think the top one perhaps is simply that cars, once you've bought one um, and you have one available to you, they're just so incredibly convenient and it's quite hard for public and active transport to compete with that. So if you think about leaving the home early in the morning, if the keys are by the front door, hopping in the car is dead easy, it's an existing habit, it's the default choice, it's warm and dry, and most of us live in a built environment that's frankly just geared around car ownership and use. Um, but in contrast, foregoing the car, that might mean dragging the bike out of the shed, pumping the tyre up, getting sweaty or rained on, having to navigate roads and paths that don't feel particularly safe, depending where you live, or perhaps you know walking to a bus stop, waiting there, not being 100% confident that it's going to turn up on time, and so on. Um, and I think some of these issues are sort of particularly problematic, given we're so biased towards upfront costs and rewards, the immediate um, choice before us. And so when those frictions and hassles are at the beginning of a journey, they're particularly off-putting, and then they can sort of lock us into using a car for the whole day, even though you know it might have just been something that was a particular hassle at the beginning of our morning that caused us to take that option. So that's what we call a first-mile problem that's particularly pernicious. So I think what's generally needed is a bit of a carrot and a bit of a stick. So the carrot really needs to include quite substantial improvements in public and active transport infrastructure and ticketing and really low prices. Uh, we've seen incredibly low public transport prices in Germany recently, for example, and that's been quite a success. The stick, and I'm sorry to say for all the motorists listening, um, is going to be something that discourages car use where good alternatives exist. So that might include things like road pricing or a congestion zone or more pedestrianised areas in towns. Employers, I would say, also have a role to play, as the provision of free parking at workplaces is, again, something which keeps us in our cars. And I'm not making a blanket recommendation to just rescind all those parking rights across the country, but the reality is that the evidence does show the importance of these kinds of factors in shaping our mobility habits. So if we're really serious about reducing car use, uh, these are the kind of points we're going to have to seriously look at. And of course, you know, land isn't free, so it's quite possible that some companies in towns and cities could choose to provide free train or bus passes to their staff in place of parking, for example. But that does require something of a culture shift for many. Um, I'll finish by saying on a more optimistic note, though, we do find that public support for some of the ideas here is actually quite surprisingly positive. So, for example, in our survey, we find that 76% are in favour of more pedestrianised areas in towns and cities versus just 19% opposition. Making public transport much, much cheaper, 57% uh, support, 38% opposition. That was framed in a sort of open and honest way, um, highlighting that that would need to be funded, which I think is why it doesn't get even higher support. 
you know, I think all things considered, it's not easy to get people out of cars. We kind of don't know how good we've got it. It's so convenient to drive. Um, so some uh, relatively challenging policy implementation might be required in the future. But actually, there is a sort of baseline there of public understanding and public support that I think could be you know, really helpful in taking us in that direction. Yeah, definitely. I think I was also quite pleasantly surprised by the levels of support for some of these ideas. Um, And I think as well, there are places out there who are already implementing ideas like this, like the Mini Holland Scheme um, in Waltham Forest. And these are places you can look to and learn from how they've implemented and what's worked and what hasn't. So I guess that's kind of all things to do with cars. Um, What about aviation? Without decarbonising technologies like hydrogen, aviation could be responsible for 22% of the planet's emissions by 2050. Because it can pack more energy into a smaller space, hydrogen has recently overtaken electric batteries as the front-runner in the race for cleaner flying. So I think an interesting point on aviation that is perhaps not so well-known is that 15% of people take 70% of flights. So we're talking about frequent business flights, mainly. Uh, A minority of people taking the majority of flights. Um, So although aviation and reducing demand for aviation is superficially controversial, it might not be that we need to get into such difficult territory to take a chunk out of aviation. For example, one idea that we put past the public in our survey work was a frequent flyer levy. Um, So this is the idea of steeply increasing the passenger duty on your third, fifth, and tenth flight of the year. And that got pretty high support in our survey, 57% of people agreeing with it, 38% of people disagreeing with it as a policy idea. And then one step even further, is that where reasonable overground alternatives exist, so train or ferry or bus, um, that you ban short-haul flights. Short-haul flights are actually um, quite carbon-intensive per mile um, because a lot of the carbon emissions from flights comes from takeoff. So those short-haul flights, they're they're even more sort of carbon-intensive actually per mile than the long-haul flights, although, of course, the long-haul flights um, are more carbon-intensive overall. Anyway, that sounds pretty radical, but France are doing something like this already, and it doesn't affect that many flights. In the UK, um, it would, you know, if, if we were talking about banning options where there are a train or a bus option of less than two and a half hours, that would ban flights from London to Manchester. Um, so it wouldn't change many people's commute. Most people, of course, do take the train to get from London to Manchester, um, but it bans these especially carbon intensive per mile flights, and it sends a strong signal about the issue and importance of shifting our travel norms. Yeah, definitely. I think that's really interesting. Um, I won't send us off on a tangent right now, but for anyone who is interested in the report, we do touch on things like feedback loops, tipping points, and the role that things like bolder political rhetoric have to play in this kind of thing. I guess another area um, that is perhaps still a little bit less at the forefront of people's minds in relation to climate change is also food or rather our diets. Um, This is something that we have already explored in quite some depth in our Menu for Change report that came out a couple of years ago. But Toby, I wondered if you want to talk a little bit about what is so special about diets from a behavioural perspective, not only, I guess, sustainable diets, but also food waste, which is a new area that we've looked at in this report. 
Yeah, thank you. I think shifting diets in particular towards um, products that are lower in meat and dairy and higher in vegetables and legumes and so on is a really interesting issue behaviorally. It's one of the biggest impact changes we can all make and actually one of the easiest. There's not really any sort of chronic cost or accessibility or practical barriers. We could all change our diets to some extent tomorrow if we really wanted to. But yet it's still seen as one of the most contentious. Um, it's obviously quite a culturally ingrained sort of normative set of choices. And ultimately, many of us don't like the idea of being told what to eat. So I think for us, there are basically two strategies that have merit here. Firstly, yes, we can encourage dietary shift where we can and where it's acceptable. And we would argue that there's actually a lot of low-hanging fruit there. There's a lot of interventions that are much more about I suppose, leveling up or enabling or, in, or sort of helping people to eat uh, more sustainable food before we need to get into the territory of penalizing or discouraging or restricting consumption of unsustainable food. So there's a sort of positive framing there that I think is, is really valuable. But secondly, the other half of the strategy, I think, where the heavy lifting could actually ultimately be done is more upstream, where we're thinking about encouraging farmers and producers to essentially reformulate their products by which we mean, of course, decarbonize them by adopting best practice in sustainable production methods, uh, driving innovation, perhaps bringing new mar products to market, which are more sort of blended meat and veg products, for example. So on the former point around interventions to shift dietary behaviors among consumers, there's quite a mountain of evidence now on effective interventions to do that. Um, they're often best implemented by supermarkets, restaurants, canteens, and so on, because those organizations are generally the, the architects of our food environments. This means things like increasing the relative availability of plant-based options in canteens. So some lovely studies came out of Cambridge uh, a couple of years ago that showed big impacts from just doubling the number of plant-based options in a canteen from one in four to two in four. Quite an easy, easy to do uh, intervention. Uh, maybe uh, giving plant-based options by default where that's appropriate. So maybe on flights, conferences, weddings, whatever it might be, you know, allowing people to opt out and make the choice they want, but flipping that default. So if they don't make a proactive choice, they get something that's plant-based. And of course, things like using pricing and in-store incentives, um, maybe putting sustainable options at the end of aisles and in the most salient locations on shelves and so on. So all of these things have been pretty well evidenced to be worthwhile and impacts kind of range from modest but still, you know, valuable uh, to actually pretty surprisingly substantial. So I suppose those are sort of classic midstream interventions to go back to our analogy earlier. They alter the choice architecture in order to promote different outcomes. Um, I would say on top of this as well, there is quite a fundamental knowledge gap so whilst we don't expect mere information provision to have massive impacts, it's definitely worthwhile in this context because the majority of people still think that sustainable eating or sustainable food is all about plastic packaging, food miles, and food waste. And so these are important issues for sure, but they're generally way below the simple question of which products you choose to eat, you know, beef, chicken, vegetables, etc. So I think simply providing that information uh, would be quite an important downstream intervention in this case. But I think it's fair to say we think the biggest wins would need to be upstream, ultimately. So the poster child of success in this field is really the UK sugar levy. So this was explicitly designed to incentivize reformulation among producers, rather than as a more conventional syntax to discourage consumers from choosing sugary drinks. So the way they did that was by setting the tax at two quite carefully calibrated thresholds of sugar content. 
known to be within the range of sort of realistic attempts to reformulate those products so that producers could ultimately avoid paying the tax by removing the sugar from their drinks. So I think the beauty of that is that it, you know, it would only take a minority of price-conscious consumers who would think about shifting to a different brand to create enough of a commercial incentive for the producers to reformulate to avoid losing that market share. And yet by doing that, the choice environment is now radically lower in sugar. And so all consumers end up drinking less sugar, regardless of whether they individually would have been price sensitive and changed their consumption as a result of the levy. So we're basically recommending something, you know, identical to that, but based on carbon emissions per portion of some key sort of high carbon foodstuffs. And incidentally, it'd also be quite a benefit to UK beef and lamb producers. This is often one of the sort of points of resistance because generally speaking, their products are already quite a bit less carbon intensive than uh, comparable imports. So politically, we think it's possible from that perspective, but it's also surprisingly popular among consumers. Uh, Not the most popular idea we polled by any means, but still more than half. So 53% support it versus 38% oppose it. And actually that support goes up quite significantly if you frame it appropriately. So if you frame it as a tax on producers rather than on consumers, and if you frame it as a carbon levy rather than as, as a sort of de facto levy on red meat per se, then support is actually even higher. But then finally, the other recommendation I'd like to highlight is the introduction of green ratings for supermarkets. So again, this gets to the point that most consumers do want to be more sustainable, but we often don't know how. And a good case in point is that most of us do have access to multiple supermarket brands, but have no reliable way of knowing which one is doing more good for the environment. Uh, So we think that introducing a robust system of green ratings could solve that. Uh, So imagine what would happen if we did that. So, okay, maybe only 5%, 10% of shoppers would actually change the supermarket they go to. But in a competitive market, that's enough, right? That's enough to incentivize those businesses to start competing on how green they are. And in turn, what that would hopefully lead to is that all of us then find ourselves in supermarkets that are doing more to cut their emissions, to promote more sustainable options, cut their waste, and so on. So that is really, you know, it's the important point we made earlier that we can leverage market competition for good, but only if businesses are actually competing on environmental performance. And of course, as it stands, they're rarely doing that. Thanks, Toby. Yeah, I think um, sustainable diets is um, a really nice example of a lot of the points that we were talking about earlier. So, for example, the strategic role that communications can play, but also the need for things like midstream and upstream interventions. Um, As I mentioned in the report, we do also touch on food waste. So I wondered, Andrew, if you wanted to talk a little bit about that. Thanks, Izzy. Food waste is a very interesting issue. I used to work in environmental campaigning specifically from the angle of fighting food waste. And food waste is so sort of disgusting to the public that you can talk about other potentially more controversial issues from the lens of food waste. So, for example, you can talk about how the waste of meat is so problematic because of the high impact of meat. And you could potentially reach people who eat meat, but are still then, you know, um, shocked by the cost of the food waste of meat. And it might sort of start them thinking about reducing meat consumption in general. On top of that, of course, reducing food waste itself is directly and sort of instrumentally valuable to um, sort of like reaching net zero. Um, And we think, again, that there's a mix of low, mid, and upstream incentives and interventions that can work. So there's been some really interesting work done in other countries in Europe 
um, such as tax incentives for businesses donating food, making sure that those businesses know that they'll be protected from liability if they do donate food. Um, that's uh, some work in Italy. And then extra charges and fines for businesses wasting food, which has been tried in France. So last but not least, um, the fourth and final sector that we talk about in the report is consumption. Um, and this is all about the carbon footprint of basically everything that we buy and how we dispose of it or perhaps maybe reuse it and repair it instead. Food has a, a water and energy footprint, and we, we like to call that an ecological footprint. And meat has a footprint that is 20 times higher than that of beans, fruits and vegetables, uh, the basic components of a vegetarian diet. So what I'm wondering here is, first of all, do people know how to shop sustainably? Um, what are the barriers that they might encounter when trying to do so? And then similarly, what are some of the solutions that we've come up with here? So this is another challenging one, I think, for me. Uh, certainly, there's a lot of embodied emissions, particularly in imported goods, which um, are unhelpfully not on our UK domestic carbon books. So, you know, when you do include those consumption emissions, what you find is that the UK's emissions as a whole have still dropped significantly since 1990, but certainly not by as much as the headline stats that you tend to see. So in terms of what we can do about it, of course, part of that is down to what the countries in which these things are being produced do in terms of their own energy use and production methods and so on. But from the UK, we could certainly buy less. That might mean making do with less. It might mean just repairing and reusing. Uh, or we can buy better, so buying greener products, buying secondhand and so on. And we, of course, can recycle things more effectively when they reach the end of their lives. I would say this, um, it's certainly the former, buying less is incredibly hard. You know, it goes very much against the norm of consumerism that is so ingrained in our culture. Um, in terms of buying better and uh, pursuing, you know, more circular models of consumption, like more repair, more reuse and so on, for me, this is ultimately a, a system-level kind of upstream problem, at least in the main. So consumers can certainly try to do their bit. We can certainly try to buy the greener products when we're faced with a choice. We can try and repair things a little more commonly, etc. But I do think that radical change will only come if the consumer environment and the system of commercial incentives is also quite radically different. So we, we just can't have a world in which it's easier and cheaper to replace something than it is to repair it. We can't have a world in which the recycling system is just so complex and confusing. We can't have a world uh, with deliberate obsolescence of products. We can't have a world in which it's, it's essentially impossible for the average consumer to really know which product or service is more green. Uh, so, you know, that just leaves us to our slightly dodgy intuitions where we're simply drawn to greenwashing or packaging with the most sort of convincing earthy tones and green imagery. Because really, this stuff is incredibly complex. Uh, often the reusable cup might not be any better than the disposable one. The cloth bag might not be any better than the plastic one. It really all depends on the detail. So for me, the responsibility must lie upstream with better regulation, better standards, clearer labeling, and really realigning those commercial incentives with more sustainable and circular modes of consumption. So I guess, you know, in short, we've got quite a long way to go on that. And I think we're only scratching the surface compared to what's needed. That said, we have done some interesting research, I think, which reveals some pretty valuable insights as a starting point. So, for example, we did some work with Gumtree last year, looking at promoting the purchase of second-hand goods over new. I think one of the key insights that came out of that, which was particularly interesting for me, was how the barriers to, to purchasing second-hand were really specific to the type of products in question. 
So, you know, if it's about secondhand electricals, for example, the biggest barrier was um, around perceptions of it becoming out of date or unreliable or out of warranty too quickly. That's very different to something like secondhand furniture, like, you know, wooden furniture, bed frames, desks and so on, where it was much more about the convenience of collecting it. Um, compared to buying new, where you can often get free and very convenient delivery, that's just often not the case with secondhand purchases. Uh, whereas if you're looking at things like clothes or soft furnishings, like sofas and so on, it's much more about the sort of ick factor, the fact that it's been used by someone else and it might not be totally clean. So, you know, I think for me that shows that there is not a sort of one-size-fits-all solution here. We actually need a market in which a range of sort of innovative solutions and consumer offers are provided, whether that's better sort of product guarantees on refurbished and used appliances, whether that's more convenient delivery options, whatever it might be. But there's a range of issues there that need to be addressed before we realistically will be in a, in a place where people sort of more routinely buy secondhand important piece of context here is that in the UK, recycling is one area where there are some pretty significant policies on the horizon, which I think could have the potential to make quite a big impact. So we've got extended producer responsibility coming in, but from a particularly interesting behavioural standpoint, we've also got a deposit return scheme for drinks containers. We've also got the standardisation of curbside recycling. Uh, and one important thing that actually enables is simplification of labels, because part of the problem at the moment is that with different regions and different uh, counties providing different levels of recycling, manufacturers cannot simply indicate on their packaging that this is definitely recyclable or definitely not. They have to sort of hedge and, you know, provide indications of what it's made of so that the consumer then has to sort of work it out. That can be completely overhauled. And we do have some data on that from a recent study of ours where we tested simplified recycling labels. So we, this is specifically looking at bathroom recycling, so recycling of shampoo bottles, deodorant cans, and so on. Uh, and we tested the impact of simply um, putting Recycle Me green stickers on the front of pack, um, as well as providing free bathroom recycling caddies that you could hang on the back of your door. Uh, what we found is that that roughly halved the recycling gap. Uh, in other words, half as many people failed to recycle that, uh, that those products in, in response to that intervention. So, you know, there's more to do there, but clearly there are some pretty big wins to be had from these quite simple changes. But we do need those upstream systematic changes like the standardization of curbside recycling before those sort of more consumer facing prompts like labels and so on really make any sense at all. Great. Well, I think that's probably all we have time for today. We've covered quite a lot of ground there. Thanks, Toby and Andrew, for your time. That was all very interesting. I mean, I found it personally very interesting, and I'm sure our listeners did as well. I think I would just encourage anybody who is interested in the area of behavioural insights and net zero across any of the sectors that we've spoken about to go out and read our report. That's How to Build a Net Zero Society. Um, you can find that on our website, which is bi.team. Um, we're also quite active on Twitter if anybody would like to follow us there at BI Tweets. So that's at B underscore I underscore tweets. Um, and thanks again for listening. Inside the Nudge Unit is a production of the Behavioural Insights team. Editing and sound design was by Andy Hetherington of Studio Gibbon and the producer was Rich O'Brien. Thanks so much for listening.